0: Well-
1: Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory.
0: Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenna. Hello, folks. On today's episode, we discussed lightsabers, the United States Space Force, and Directed Energy's role in space. In three, two, one. Today, we are joined by Dr. Hammond, the director of our Directed Energy Directorate. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Of course. Uh, Before we kick into anything, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. So after speaking with you before we met today, uh, we found out you're very much an expert in optical beam control. Does that mean you've built a lightsaber before? That
1: means that I have dabbled with such technologies and uh, have built maybe more the equivalent of a TIE fighter than than a lightsaber.
0: Hey, you know, still a good time for Star Wars, so fans out there, pay attention. You may be hearing some of that very, uh, the classic screeching overhead here soon enough. Who knows? But that's, I want to make sure first, because our fans would probably be angry if we didn't check. Uh, but I appreciate the answer. If if I
1: had built such a device, I wouldn't be able to tell you.
0: <laughs> okay, final question then. So if you were to actually build one, if you did, uh, what color would you choose?
1: Oh, That's a good one. Uh, I would probably choose Deep Air Force Blue.
0: Now, see, that's the right answer right there. Obi-Wan and you agree. (laughs) That's very good.
2: Well, to transition from the jokes that I can't participate in and because I don't have a a background in uh, lightsabers. Dr. Hammett, we're talking about space now. What is your role and AFRL's role within the Department of the Air Force to include the Space Force now?
1: Yeah, so let let me try to summarize this quickly. The, The Space Force was established on December 20th, 2019. So immediately upon stand up of the Space Force, the question was asked, Do we need a separate space laboratory to develop technologies that are dedicated to the Space Force? And at the most senior levels of the department, the answer came back no, we're already doing a lot of great technology development and research for space within the Air Force Research Laboratory. We have the Space Vehicles Directorate, we have the Space Electro-Optics Division of Directed Energy, we have the the Rocket Lab uh, RQR out at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, and a number of other activities sprinkled throughout the the enterprise. And the main piece is even though we have these dedicated uh, activities, which we are, by the way, transferring over to the Space Force, billets and funding will move associated with those groups. Uh, And then in concert with not breaking the laboratory apart, they'll be assigned back to the laboratory essentially in place so that we execute uh, our research dedicated and focused space research activities on behalf of the Space Force. The main motivation for not breaking the lab apart is there is so much other great work going on in materials, microelectronics, human machine interfaces, uh, tc types of things that the Space Force also wants to leverage. So if we break those groups apart from the first ones that I mentioned and create a scene there, we'll really lose an opportunity for capitalizing on what we consider to be those dual use technologies. And so we don't want to do that. And so we're going to keep the laboratory together. We are going to give the space force a championship and ownership of some of those dedicated assets, billets and and funding. And then we're going to work to better leverage the dual use portfolio for the Space Force needs and priorities. My particular role is given that we're not going to break the laboratory into two is nevertheless, the Space Force wants to have a single entry point into the lab. They don't want to have to run around to nine TDs, the headquarters, all the functional directorates, if they have questions about contracts or microelectronics or materials, they want one entry point. And so my job is to be that entry point, to stay very connected with the senior leaders in the Space Force as to their needs, priorities and what they want from the s and ecosystem. And then align us per the tenants that I just talked about before, support the Space Force as it works through palming. And, and by that, I mean budgets and, and that palm includes both manpower and funding. So as they look to maybe add more people to do more s and activities, or they want to increase funding in certain areas, it's my job to help them in that process. And it's my job to organize and manage our s and portfolio across the entire enterprise. So we've established a, a space S&T group and a space s and board, consistent with our current AFRL governance process. Uh, and I chair the, the board for that. So, um, Currently, you know, a lot of the the lay people might not know across AFRL that we have, we have functionally established groups and boards. So we have an FM group, we have a PK group, but this is how we do governance in AFRL. We convene these bodies. We put uh, substantive issues having to do with resources and policies and procedures on the table we can get together and make decisions and take that up through a a board and a council process. The council uh, is chaired by the commander and has all the TD directors on it. So that's, that's a process that we actually just put in place about five years ago across AFRL. It did not exist for the first 15 years of AFRL's existence. So it's something that we, we knew we needed to do so that we can better, Act as one AFRL supporting two services, and the services, of course, the United States Air Force and the United States Space Force.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good overview of AFRL is is taking that step to make sure that we're fully supporting both services, and and you're the you're the conductor or the 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 pipeline to make sure that happens. And for some of our listeners that might not be familiar with like our our corporate structure, when we talk about PK and FM, we're talking about you know contracting is part of this, finance is a part of it. It's not it's not merely the science. There's so many business functions that, that go into this uh, decision-making too. And our, our, our TDs or our technical directorates, you you outlined it perfectly. You can't take materials in manufacturing. That's not just a traditional air force thing. That's a a space force thing too. And we often hear, uh, I think it was general Palakowski once said that, you know, a technology doesn't know its application until we tell it. So is, is this uh advancement in material sciences that apply to an airplane or or a spacecraft you know it doesn't know until we tell it so i think that's a really good uh explanation of 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 why um you know that our senior leaders made the decision to keep the laboratory together
1: that analogy or paradigm uh, still lives to this day uh general Polakowski said it so much general bunch has adopted it uh and general pringle has adopted it uh but but the key thing from my perspective that that's great about that paradigm is the very uh last three words until we tell it so if we're not as you say and as i said you know cognizant of the work that's going on in some of those areas and monitoring for applicability to space needs capability needs and gaps we won't tell it uh so so that's that. you you said it right i'm the conductor here i'm i'm orchestrating things my role is really as I said uh, being a champion a change agent and to work on alignment and processes uh, but I I don't own all of this I'm not overseeing day-to-day execution of all of our space sT that's still done in the technical uh, directorates and and by our the rest of our team so uh, as the perfect analogy I'm, I'm the conductor or the orchestrator but I'm I'm not doing all the work and making all those decisions. I'm just trying to get us to a a more aligned enterprise portfolio.
0: So thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Hammett, Uh, we wanted to make sure that we had a really good introduction into not only what you do, but the importance of it. But uh, we know there's a lot that led up to that point. So we kind of want to take a step back and see the amazing career you had that uh, really gave you or got you to this position. Uh, So starting off, we know that um, you um, uh, were a top ROTC cadet in the nation, or one of the tops in the nation. So um, what kind of doors did that open for you early on?
1: So the the message that I I really want to send as we go through today is is for people to take ownership of their careers, really set the goals and objectives that they want to get after, and then you you have to pursue it. It's not going to come to you um, if you sit back and just expect great things to happen. That's, that's been a hallmark of my career and a, and a number of careers of others. Timing is really important. The external environment that we're living in is always changing. That presents both opportunities and challenges. For me, I've always tried to do my very best at whatever it was I'm doing. So you mentioned I had a lot of success in college. I was the outstanding senior in the College of Engineering at the University of Oklahoma. I was a, a top rotc cadet i uh, was a distinguished graduate or a top graduate of field training and then all of those things that whole body of work through my college career ended up having uh me being named to what they called the rotc region of valor which was for the top five cadets across the nation in air force rotc and so you know that again that didn't just come you had to apply for that you had to do the research to know that this award existed and that you had to go you know put a resume and an application package together and be interviewed actually by a a number of folks so that whole process you know i did i did that 32 years ago and that's how the rest of my career went Uh, identify an opportunity go after it do your homework and and then engage with people and be able to um, persuade them, that you were the one you were the candidate pick me, you know, uh, whether that's for a job an award or something else like that. And so that the key thing that came out of that is the machine of the Air Force Personnel Center had decided that I was to be sent to LA Air Force Station to be a satellite engineer, um, right out of undergrad at the University of Oklahoma. But that's not what I wanted. I, I wanted more education and, and different opportunities. And so Having that award allowed me to, again, have some conversations with my local leadership, my commandant of cadets, my professor of aerospace studies. And I had actually applied for what they call direct ascension to AFIT. Well, back to the environment is constantly shifting on us. That year for the first time, and I don't know how long, they took no active duty officers directly to AFIT in residence. So that was a setback, but it, but it didn't stop me. I I went and had a conversation actually with the commandant of AFIT and he said, well, that's not the only way to get a a master's degree through AFIT. We have a civilian institutions program and we're not doing that either this year. But if you go look at this thing called air force regulation, 53 18, I still remember it to this day, it's called grants fellowships and scholarships. If you, can find a institute of higher learning that will pay your tuition at the air force level we maintain like 10 billets across the air force you can apply to that program and if selected the air force will pay your salary the institution of higher education will pay your tuition um, and your books and it's win-win because the the air force doesn't have to tote the whole bill you get to go to grad school and the institution Uh, Gets you as a cheap second lieutenant labor, and that's actually what happened. Uh, You know, long story short, but it it didn't again happen immediately. It was a race down to the deadline. I had to apply. I had to identify an institution. I had to find a program um, that would pay for my tuition. And so, what that ended up being for me was MIT. I, I went from the plains of Oklahoma to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and got accepted into MIT. Got accepted into what was called the Draper Laboratory Fellowship Program. And so MIT accepted me, Draper Laboratory agreed to pay my tuition because they had a fellowship program and the Air Force paid my salary. And I got the exposure to all of those great things An Air Force higher education program, a fellowship at Draper, which by the way, used to be the MIT instrumentation lab. That's where All the work was done on the Apollo Guidance, Navigation, and Control Program. And the guys who did it were a lot of my professors at MIT. Um, So could have gone to L.A., and maybe that would have been cool working in a SPO. But it just catapulted my career in a completely different way to go work where we were doing Apollo uh, Guidance, Navigation, and Control, getting taught from the greatest minds in the country who had developed and programmed the algorithms, you know, on the... the computing resources we had back in 1968 and nine were nothing like we had today. And imagine you being the astronaut sitting in the cockpit with, am I going to get to the moon and back safely based on what these guys coded up into this little processor, the courage, the tenacity, the perseverance of that whole team. Amazing. And, and I, I don't think I mentioned this to you before, Kenneth, but it just popped into my head. Uh, I was actually asked to go back for the 50th anniversary of Apollo a couple years ago and speak and attend a a reunion. And and I I did uh, uh, as a Draper Fellow alum. And that was just amazing. They had a a huge display and they were celebrating all that to be part of that history. And that legacy has carried me through. And and back to what I just told you today, I growing up as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. I had a moon mural on my wall. uh, And so it was the start of a dream come true to go from Oklahoma to MIT, to work at Draper, to be in that ecosystem of brilliant minds doing innovation that led uh, this nation to the moon and back.
2: I just say, uh, what a rewarding story of being your own advocate. And you mentioned being persuasive. Are those skills that, I mean, I think being your own advocate I think is something that we we learn and we can keep it in the forefront of our mind, that get yourself where you see yourself, but how did you learn to be so persuasive?
1: You know, you mentioned General Pawlikowski, and I was a young kid at that point. I was probably more uh, persistent, <laughs> uh, but but you do your homework, and that, one of the things I learned from General Pawlikowski much later in my career, and this has helped me out, you know, do your homework. Know the facts. You know, the whole career shapes you. Going to SOS, you learn how to put a succinct briefing together, you can have all the facts. But if you don't have that boiled down into the the three main points, or so that will carry the day, you've got to learn those skills. Uh, I learned those over my career and General Polakowski uh, always in, in her dealings with the bureaucracy uh, of and this has served me much better in my later career, uh, overwhelm people with facts and convey to them the confidence that you know what you're talking about. But be able to again boil that down into the into the key points that are relevant and impactful, and just practice, right? So you you've got to practice that, and and have opportunities, and then start low, and then you know move up into bigger and bigger forums with greater and greater impact, and know your audience. And knowing your audience is key. What they hold important, what you know, uh, for people like. Um, you know the mit applications committee and such you know they wanted to know that that you were serious so put put effort into your application package and try to meet them where they're going to be looking for your qualifications for decision briefings and other things again convey that you know what the the decision authority is looking for that you're you're not just in it for you that you're there to support what needs and priorities they're looking for and particularly when you're applying for jobs or other things, not only that you know what you're doing, um, but you're a team player, and you're, you're willing to work with others, and, and you can adjust and adapt. That's, one, that's been one of the main hallmarks of my career that I think makes me adaptive is that even though I uh, you will know, we'll get to the rest of my career chronology, but eventually got a PhD and in and dynamics and controls and i can speak that language i can go sit with chief scientists and and techno speak geek but i i can also speak to operators i can also speak to junior force members because i was a junior force member at one point um, so having those different perspectives and being able to tailor your communications your message and your point to the different audiences is really a key you can't use the same message and, and platform for every audience. you got to be able to to con- communicate and connect to whoever it is you're trying to do that with.
2: Absolutely. I mean, even on our podcast, we normally, in other forms of communication, don't get to ask about lightsabers and stuff to connect to our audience, but uh, we're, we're trying to make it a, a little more fun and, uh you know, take something home from this podcast that you didn't know before about the world, which which might be about how to create a lightsaber if you were allowed to tell us whether you'd actually made one. So speaking of our audience, just to fill them in a little bit, we've we've mentioned General Palakowski a few times on this episode already. And just for their context, General Ellen Palakowski, you, you can Google her, but she was former AFRL uh, commander and she retired as a four-star general as the the commander of our Air Force Material Command. So amazing career. And she's she might even be listening. I know she follows us in comments on Facebook and LinkedIn's sometimes too. So ma'am, if if you're listening, hello, (laughs) we'll have to get her on here, Ken.
0: Hey, No, I totally agree. And uh, before we move ahead, I, I did have a, a question kind of go back to the, the Draper Fellows program. Um, going back to Star Wars, because I love to, I very much imagine you kind of like a young Luke Skywalker there in the plains of Oklahoma, looking out, seeing the binary sunset and saying, you know what, the future has something bright for me. And getting to connect with MIT and going to work with people who were connected to the Apollo program is amazing. Can you kind of walk us through that headspace real quick? Being a, a space enthusiast or someone who loved is a passion for it, what was it like to really be there? There.
1: It was a very eye-opening experience for me. Horizon broadening. Uh, I grew up uh, actually in Ohio. I was an Air Force brat. And so I was born at wright Pat. Um, actually, in my lifetime, uh, I've lived in Dayton for 17 years, um, 11 years growing up, graduated from Beaver Creek High School. And, and then was assigned there for six years as an active duty officer. So it was a bit of a culture shock to go down to Oklahoma, but my family was from Oklahoma, I had some support system there, which is part of why I went. And they were also very generous with scholarships had an ROTC scholarship and several other scholarships from the university itself that enabled that. So from the Plains, the Midwest, the Great Midwest to the, the South, the, the Deep South or the Redneck Bible Belt, Deep South to MIT and Cambridge and a a very multi-racial, multicultural, urban uh, history steeped culture was just tremendous. Uh, what what a, a round out of, of the experiences and things that I didn't have before. So now I'm just immersed in technology and civilization and history and it was incredible. It was again, it convinced me that this was a career path for me and that I would stay, and I would continue to follow the stars, and and keep going down this this path.
0: That is so cool. Yeah. Again, uh, being a bit of a space geek myself, like to be in the presence of those people and to see that in person, I mean, that would be beyond cool. So definitely a little jealous, but I'm glad to hear you got to do it. That sounds like quite, like you said, quite the opportunity.
1: It's it's pretty crazy to walk into some of your classrooms and, you know, see a guy's name who, like I said, was over on the wall at, at the Draper lab. And then he says, um, pull out your textbook, which he wrote. Um, <laughs> that's and, nice. right, and that's what everybody across the country is using to teach astrodynamics.
0: Again, almost like it's a such unique experience because even you know when I was uh, studying journalism, never quite had that level. Met some cool people, but never I wrote the book and putting it down. So, um, like you said, that gives you such a, a cool opportunity and uh, expands your horizons. Because what a way to be inspired than by the people who helped, like you said, write this history themselves. Um, we know you eventually reconnected Wright Patterson Air Force Base um, by working with the foreign tech division. Uh, what did you do there exactly?
1: Yeah, so, so after MIT and Draper, that's where I went. I was assigned to, to Wright-Patterson, and now for something completely different. Uh, I talked about the academic community and things that I'd done. Uh, so now I was in the science and scientific and technical intelligence, which is what the old foreign technology division used to do. Now we call it NASIC, the National Air and Space Intelligence Center went through I I actually I'm one of the one of the few, one of the proud back to timing, timing matters, there were all kinds of crazy things going on. When I was there, there was a company grade officer reduction in force while I was at NASIC, which I survived and a lot of my friends didn't. And we went through like four name changes. And I have all the patches because we you know, you had to get them for your BDUs. Uh, And and so we went through multiple name changes, cultural changes, Uh, the whole the whole point there was adding air and space to the name, you know, recurring theme. 20, 30 years ago, we were talking about making sure we had the appropriate emphasis on space and and we were doing it in the intelligence community. And the really cool thing that I got to do there was uh, use my degree and my technical acumen. My job was to use sensor data that we collected from our intelligence assets to estimate the performance of foreign missiles. Um, ICBMs, SLBMs, so intercontinental ballistic missiles, sub-launched ballistic missiles, and so we have a whole worldwide apparatus. This in- introduced me to the intelligence community. It, I had to get a top secret uh, clearance with access to information that we that we don't have to this day, and that kind of a joke back to I've worked a lot of classified programs then in my career, building lightsabers maybe, and and other things that we can't talk about, but. Uh, I got to use my degree in optimal estimation and control theory to develop and apply algorithms to estimate performance of these systems. And a couple of of really interesting things, given the timing again, this was 1991, Operation Desert Storm uh, was happening, and one of the major threats that we faced at that time was Scud missiles um, that were being moved around and shot at our our troops, and, and it was a big threat and the shop I was in, that was one of their main jobs was to try to figure out where those missiles were going, how far could they reach. So I did short range ballistic missiles, but the full gamut and Kenneth, uh, when we talked before, you know, I also probably my crowning achievement. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons I survived the RIF was I was one of the first analysts to analyze Chinese missile performance and be able to project that they could actually threaten the, the U S homeland. And that, that, analysis and that briefing went all the way up to the secretary of defense so doing work that was very technically focused but impactful again to to the audience that i was supporting in, in my supervisory chain um, that was that was incredibly cool both of those things to be supporting desert storm and to to do performance assessments on our near peer competitors back to the future again we kind of forgot about china for 30 years now we're, now we care a whole lot about those missiles and where they can go and and what their performance capabilities are. And I was kind of on the ground floor uh, with doing that work many, many years ago.
0: And that's huge to think to wrap your head around just on um, how expansive that work was, like you mentioned, from the defense of our nation to finding um, a now near peer adversary, like launching or having the capability of using these missiles. And again, in Operation Desert Storm, like that, that's big. So a question we had that came out of that was um, your day-to-day could be, like you mentioned, um, really any number of things happening. So how did working in this um, area the tech division uh, really help prepare you for handling crisis scenarios?
1: Well, one, again, like I said, I was in a highly classified environment. So I learned very on the discipline of protecting uh, sensitive and classified information and would get exposure to that. Um, It was a team sport. Uh, I supported an analyst down the hall. So I I did the technical analysis, but I wasn't, quote, the, the authorized expert to make the technology assessment. The intelligence community has a process by only certain intelligence officers uh, can make those official assessments and produce those reports. So I learned about working on a team and and division of authority and responsibility Uh, with that particular thing is something that's carried through my entire career. A lot of folks, particularly in the laboratory who haven't been in a hierarchical military organization don't necessarily understand decision authority. Not everybody can decide officially to do certain things. Um, and you, you really understanding that in a career is important, particularly as you move up, because you get more and more decision authority, responsibility. There's, there's consequences to decisions. And you, you really have to understand those and, and factor that in when, you, when you're making those kinds of things. And then uh, the final thing, and this is a little bit more on the lighter side, I worked in an office with no windows uh, in a cubicle for three years. And it told me I really didn't want to do that. The rest of my career, I wanted to get to someplace eventually like beautiful uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, where if you're looking behind, I have windows, I have sunlight streaming into my office, 340 days a year. And I'm no kidding. That really affected me. Uh, but I have pursued the sun uh, for, for a lot of the rest of my career.
0: And it's funny you say that, because I know you say on a lighter note, but definitely being in a darker or a room with no windows, I could see that definitely being kind of most like not like a dungeon or anything, but definitely darker. So it's good to see you could brighten up those windows after doing that important work.
1: When I was at MIT, I used to leave uh, from home in the morning. That's I mean, that's very far north for those who haven't been to Boston. I'd leave in the morning. It was dark. I'd get out of school. It was dark. I lived in the dark for two years. But, you know, that helps you focus when you're trying to get a graduate degree at MIT. Um, But you can't can't live that way forever. At least I could. not And it continued in Ohio. So five years of that, it was like time to get out in the sun.
2: Well, speaking of the sun, what are some of the roles that you've had uh, in sunny New Mexico?
1: A very brief snapshot to transition is I I actually spent uh, nine months in the laboratory in Ohio and then went and did a PhD up at the air force institute of technology this is a very interesting story i'll tell this one so i didn't even know kirtland air force base in albuquerque new mexico existed but while i was at ftd then NASIC, uh, i told you i'm not the typical phd i'm not the typical ses i was actually a pretty good athlete in high school and uh, i played football and baseball when i got to Wright patterson there are a lot of intramural sports the the air force used to have a tremendous Intramural sport program. I played softball for the FTD team. I auditioned for and got on the base championship team. And my first trip to Albuquerque, New Mexico, was part of the AFMC command softball team uh, because we had tournaments all across the Air Force. We used to do these things prior to COVID and other sequestration and funding reductions. There used to be a lot of opportunities for fun stuff. So I came here. Um, as, as part of a championship softball team for a tournament, I said, I fell in love with the place back to making your own opportunities. Uh, when I went for my PhD program, I selected a track and a program that had a follow on assignment to Kirtland air force base. So I worked that, uh, and I never would have had that opportunity without the softball and the, and the tournaments. I just wouldn't even have known it existed, but that's how I got here.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah
1: okay so uh, keeping on the theme of timing is important timing is everything i I mentioned my follow-on assignment i got to kirtland and it turns out the people who had put in my rec my advanced active academic degree billet had moved on um had they had actually changed the billet to something that didn't line up with the with the track that i had gotten at afit and it was a complete mismatch And, and I was like disappointed. I was actually crushed. And the other thing that happened was it was a job that required me to have that top secret security clearance, which had lapsed while I had been getting my PhD. (laughs) So, so I couldn't even go in the building where I was supposed to work, but I had a network on base. Actually the analyst that I had worked with at foreign technology division had been sent here. Uh, to Kirtland and was working in another office and I reached out and connected with him and a few others. And long story short, they pulled me over uh, into a different organization. I got out of that mismatch and and that, that bad deal, um, but they had resubmitted me for my clearance. So it came through and I went over into this cell of working highly classified technology development for directed energy which was my induction into the Directed Energy Mafia, which I have never been able to escape. In fact, you could call me the made man, I'm the Don for Directed Energy in the Air Force.
0: You know, I love that. Directed Energy Mafia is a new one for me and I think that's very funny. So. Um, with that in mind, uh, that, that opens up a really cool part of your career I was very excited to talk about. Um, we know once you connected and started working more into, um, with directed energy, um, you became an expert in optical beam control. So we talked about that earlier with lightsabers, but how do you become an expert in that field?
1: Yeah, so my educational background from MIT and AFIT was in uh, controls, um, estimation and control. And the beautiful thing about that educational background is it's it's multidisciplinary. Basically, if you can take any physical system and build a mathematical model of it, that's what we did. And then you would apply algorithms to control that system. And so um, I had worked on back at the lab previously air vehicles. I was working on uh, attitude control, flight stability, and att- attitude control of aircraft. For my master's degree, I actually uh, was working on uh segmented mirrors and space-based lasers when i got here i was working on optical systems to do adaptive optics and ground to space observation here in directed energy we have the starfire optical range we have the maui site the two biggest telescopes in in the air force and the only reason those work is uh, the magic of adaptive optics that we can take a telescope and we can sense and correct for the aberrations that the atmosphere puts on light as it travels um, through the atmosphere and so i learned all about that when i got here that was our mission is to work on those types of technologies Uh, we use lasers uh, to do a lot of that we use lasers to create artificial beacons in the atmosphere we call them guide stars And we use the light that is created in the atmosphere as we look through a telescope to sense that optical turbulence and then to correct it with deformable mirrors and advanced optical algorithms and and technologies. So I learned all all about that, had the chance to run experiments, get my hands really dirty as an experimentalist, but with a a theoretical background. And then uh, Kenneth, we had talked before, had some great opportunities for continuing education and, and kind of self-directed things. Estimation and control guy, but I wasn't an optical guy. I wasn't a laser propagation guy. I wasn't a sensor guy necessarily, but I took a whole bunch of courses and was given the opportunity to do that. AFIT short courses, actually UCSB, uh, back to make your own opportunity and chase the sun. The University of California, Santa Barbara had a world leading uh, multi-month course that they taught in optical and infrared detectors. I was able to convince management to send me to that, and so a, a number of things to augment my academic education with hands-on, practical uh, education for the systems and technologies that I was developing, and and by by that, that's really how I became an expert in the field: is combining multidisciplinary areas with hands-on experience and pretty well-funded research programs. And as as people in the lab know. The other thing you get is you're not doing that in a vacuum, you get connected to, in my case, again, world leading scientists here at Starfire Optical Range. Dr. Bob Fugate basically invented the technology and the theme that I have is he was running the, the division when he was a tech director uh, at the ST when when I got here and he was a mentor to a, a team of folks who have gone off to extremely successful careers. Just this week, this is great timing. That division has had individuals win the Harold Brown Award, the top s and award in the Air Force the last two years. So just yesterday, one of my guys, the chief scientist of the Air Force, was here to recognize Dr. Odell Reynolds. And last year it was Dr. Rob Johnson. But that, I mean, that's how we win, is you create these incredible teams that are highly educated, highly motivated, working well together. You give them some money, you give them these incredible facilities like Starfire and they just knock it out of the park. And I had that opportunity. Let me see, I guess we're we're now to 20, 20 years ago in my career.
2: <laughs> and for our listeners, you're touching on things about your role as like, I guess the crime boss of the directed energy director, as you said, the Don, but- you have some amazing facilities there. I mean, what is the Starfire Optical Range? I actually know, but I think for our listeners, it'd be cool to understand. I don't know. You think a piece of technology? This is is uh, this facility. What is it?
1: So, Starfire Optical Range is a complex that houses uh, several buildings and multiple telescopes. As I said, the the Air Force's largest. We have a three and a half meter telescope. We have a one and a half meter telescope. We have a beam director telescope. We have a couple of one-meter telescopes that were designed for daytime use. And so we operate this complex to, as I said, look at base objects of interest to the Air Force. We are tracking low-Earth orbit uh, satellites. We are developing technologies to keep track of where they are, to take pictures of them. In particular, we characterize. We can actually, using this magical adaptive optics technology, take completely resolved images of WIO satellites, Uh, folks could go Leo low earth orbit, which is around 1000 kilometers in in altitude, you can go look at some of the stuff we did. I'm just thinking back to one of the things that we put in Rob Johnson's justification for the Harold Brown Award was he actually used one of the telescopes to collect the only imagery of the space shuttle that was re-entering the atmosphere back in 1986 when it exploded. So we can take pictures of satellites low earth orbit objects that you can't get anywhere else and we can tell if the pieces have fallen off if they're healthy if they're operational and as i said before we use in many cases lasers as artificial illumination sources for tracking we use lasers for artificial illumination sources for imaging because The geometry of the sun, the earth and the moon matters. If the satellite is in the earth's shadow, the sun isn't hitting it, we can't see it unless we light it up with a laser or we look at it in the infrared. And so we work on all these technologies to get 24 seven visibility, access, situational awareness and characterization of things in space. For the last five years, we've been pivoting to the geosynchronous orbital regime, which is 36,000 kilometers above the surface of the earth and a geosynchronous satellite by it's called geosynchronous because at that orbital altitude, as the earth rotates, the satellite is rotating at exactly the same rate. And so it stays at the above the same point on earth. And that's very advantageous for certain things like communications, and other points, you you need to reach a ground station. So always having your ground station in view. We have a lot of communication satellites at GEO. Um, We have a lot of our high value Air Force assets there. And so our near peer competitors, as we've been doing things like Operation Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom over the last 20 years, have been moving to that regime and looking to threaten our capabilities in GEO. Again, that's been a, a research area for us over the past several years, is to develop the new technologies. Imagine being able to see 36,000 kilometers away and being able to know what's there, keep track of what's there, characterize what's there. Um, and we actually had a program that, that just wrapped up to try to image satellites in geosynchronous from the ground using lasers.
2: And I think that's a good you know, tie back to you know when we first started this episode and you're 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 talking about your role as the deputy technology executive officer for space science and technology and you're thinking well this is a laser guy what does that have to do with space at least to like the everyday you know i'm not a science major i'm not a scientist i'm a, I'm a communicator with a business background but that's it a directed energy gives us a lot of information about space situational awareness and all these other things so this is a great tie just those examples you gave of, of observing things in low earth orbit that we use through work done in the directed energy directorate that makes sense why you're that conductor for the space force in the air force when we talk about uh, space technology and our space mission
1: a lot of people don't think of uh, directed energy when they think of space domain awareness but we actually lead that thrust across the enterprise And it's really the fundamental enabling technology that I just talked about. It's technology uh, for telescopes, optics, detectors, and the adaptive optics piece, being able to compensate for the atmosphere is why. In space, space vehicles, they don't have to do that. They're above the atmosphere. There's nothing blurring the imagery they're trying to take. But from the ground, we we have to deal with that. And the, the really interesting connection to directed energy is I like to say telescopes work both ways. What we've primarily been focusing on up to this point is light coming from a satellite, a star, and coming down through the Earth's atmosphere to a telescope on the ground. But the the converse problem is what we do in in the rest, in the other part of my portfolio, laser weapons. We take that same type of telescope and we project laser energy outward to a target. And it's the same fundamental enabling technologies that we use to do that we use adaptive optics we use the same optical type systems we use beam control algorithms and and detectors and there's a few differences on you know on the laser side we take extremely high power lasers tens to hundreds of kilowatts to be a weapon when we're using lasers for the space domain awareness applications they're much lower power and quite often they're not continuously emitting lasers they're pulsed because we want to use them like a, like a radar. We want to use optical energy to send pulses of energy out to objects, time their return arrival, and by that we get distance. We use them like radars. And so there's slight differences, but the fundamental point of using telescopes to do you know, space domain awareness or laser weapons is why that activity is located in the Directed Energy Directorate, and part of why, Um, you wouldn't want to break us apart because there's so much synergy uh, in the fundamental enabling technologies of optics, lasers, detectors and the algorithms that govern the physics that govern the propagation of laser or optical energy.
0: So tying a lot of this together, then we had a, a very good, like a theme through a lot of what we spoke with today, which is a lot of that drive to not only learn, but improve yourself and be better for it. So um, something for our viewers then looking to either um maybe not quite following the exact path, but maybe connect to different points in your story. What really drove you during all this and what um, helped you really constantly achieve a lot of these awesome goals? So
1: my own self-determination to do things I was passionate about, uh, the, the, for military officers, the air force will tell you, you got to check this box. You got to go here. You got to do that. Uh, I didn't find that to be true. I, my, my way to make it through my career was pursue things that I was capable of doing well and was passionate about, you know, capable because of the educational background and the experiences. And, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time left. So let me just string a couple of things where I, I went from where I was there in the laboratory, to the airborne laser program. We mentioned General Ellen Polakowski. That was my first connection with General Polakowski. She was the SPO director. And so I've, I've known her now for 20 years or so. And again, so why do I mention that? Mentoring and having a champion is key. So she was one of my first uh, mentors on the ABL program. From there, I went back to the laboratory. I actually went to Maui and was a commander. Uh, So as a military officer, particularly a science engineer, you don't get a lot of command opportunities. So I was a commander in Maui. And then I came back to the ABL program to do more highly classified work. And and then I retired from the military and I came back to the lab as a civilian, as a civil servant. I've been uh, back in AFRL RD because I love the technology. I love the people. I love the facilities. I love moving it forward for the importance of the nation and connecting that. As I've risen in my career, I've had those opportunities. A lot of people may not know. You you may get the sense from this. I've mentioned it a couple times. I'm really not your typical PhD. I'm really not your typical SES. I'm way more physical and way more connected to people. And I I can be the techno geek, but I really care about making a difference uh, for the nation and that passion and that striving for excellence and has really helped me. And the network that I've built up across this whole area has been a key enabler of me in my current position. I can reach out now to people all across space, directed energy, acquisition, um, air force policy that are, that are focused in these areas, directed energy and space. I've had some tremendous accomplishments, successes and worked on some great teams. And it's again, that team environment, being able to work with people, uh, to move the ball forward, that has really, I think, been the, the hallmark of my career. One of the things people don't know this as well, SESs are graded on five categories and the most important and the highest weighted category is being results driven, getting things done. And to me, that's been the hallmark of my career trying to be excellent and really make things impactful that has gotten me to where I am. And I try to share that now with all the folks that I mentor, be passionate, be excellent and work in a
0: team and you'll go far. Well, we can't really end on a better note than that. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And we look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future, Dr. Hammond.
1: Thank you very much, Kenneth, Michelle. Look forward to continuing to engage with with folks all across AFRL and sharing what we're doing uh, in the space domain and and moving us forward there but joe powikowski told me this: a lot of senior mentors it's the people that you'll in many cases remember in your career so make those connections make those partnerships yeah and and really leverage that to enjoy your life and to enjoy your career and to make a difference
0: Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious.
1: Logging off.